Hi, this is Tamson Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamson and Dan read the paper on Sunday, March 3rd, 2019. And March 3rd, for those of you who don't know, is Tamson Granger's birthday. Happy birthday, Tamson. Thank you, thank you. And it says, speaks volumes that when others would be out celebrating on their birthday, drinking, God knows what, Tamson Granger is in here recording the podcast. Right. Nose to the grindstone. Nose to the grindstone. Here we go. Wouldn't expect anything less. So, uh, it being a birthday week, it's been quite eventful. And we were at the theater on Thursday night to see Merrily We Go Along. Roll along. Roll along. Sorry. I already got something wrong. Merrily We Roll Along on the, at Roundabout. And Merrily We Roll Along is a uh, play with a lot of history. Musical play with a lot of history. Stephen Bye. Sondheim. Yeah. Uh, 1981, and famously, Merrily We Roll Along is the Stephen Sondheim flop. It uh, ran for 16 performances in 1981, and people were stunned that Stephen Sondheim could flop that way. And that uh, that uh, experience is the subject of a great documentary, which is called Best Worst Thing That Could Have Ever Happened. And uh, we saw that documentary. Right. It was uh, we, super. We probably covered that in the podcast. We probably did. Yeah. Uh, so he, how could it be? How do you have a Stephen Sondheim flop? And the answer is it's very challenging material. It's based on a uh, Kaufman Hart play, uh, the same name. And the problem is, or the challenge. Kaufman. Yeah. George Kaufman. George Kaufman and Moss, Moss Hart. Moss Hart. Right. And, From 1934. Okay. Sounds it's right. It's an old, old play. The problem is it goes backwards. And, uh, you know, there are a couple of things that do that. Uh, there was a Christopher Nolan movie, Memento, a few years ago that went backwards and people found it kind of interesting. Others, not so much. There's a Pinter play called uh, Betrayal that does that. Uh, so it's not like people don't do that. But to do it in a musical is really difficult, really off-putting, really challenging, uh, as demonstrated by Sondheim's experience. There have been revivals, and we saw a revival four years ago? 2012. Okay, that's four years ago to me. Uh, Seven years ago uh, with Lin-Manuel Miranda in it, uh, and you liked that quite a bit. I loved it. And uh, And I didn't know who Lin-Manuel Miranda was. Was that right? Is that right? Neither of us did. But we had seen In the Heights, hadn't we? In 2012? I don't think so. All right. Well, in any event... Uh, it, it's a story of a... I mean, maybe, but I, I, we would have to look it, it up. But it's, anyway... It's a story about three great friends, and uh, they achieve some some success and some failures. But it, since it's, it's, it goes backwards, it starts with uh, there being sort of discontent and no longer friends or at each other's throats to some degree. And then as the scenes roll back, you see more about their friendship, you see their hopes and dreams, you see their successes... Uh, and uh, going all the way back to where they're very idealistic as college students. Um, and the music is great. You'll agree with me on that? Music's great. Uh, so the challenge has always been, how do you make dramatic sense of it? And the folks who tried it this time were people called the Fiasco Theater, and they did a great Into the Woods a few years ago. Uh, we saw them do a Twelfth Night uh, at Classic Stage Company a year or two ago. They really... Tremendously uh, bright, innovative uh, theater folks. They're all Brown University uh, alums. And uh, I kind of liked it, and I think you liked it less than I did. Right. I felt the um, Encore's production in 2012 
was a complete surprise to me. I knew nothing about it. I found it extremely uh, poignant right. and touching mm-hmm. um, because it does, you know, go from the middle age and disillusionment right. and the complications of life mm-hmm. back to that uh, wonderful, you know, optimism and innocence and enthusiasm of youth and uh, knowing what will come. It just, uh, you know, chokes you up. Well, it, you know, it's funny you say that uh, because, you know, I, 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 there have been so many productions. I found a review uh, in a production that was done in uh, D.C., Washington, D.C., uh, in the Kennedy Center uh, in 2002. Uh, and they were talking about the same issues you always hear about, merrily we roll along. But this was a production which had Raul Esparza. Uh, and Michael Hayden, who we had seen on Broadway, and they both have great voices. And what what this reviewer says is there are terrible problems with the play, but the concluding scene was as emotionally potent, and I'm reading now, as anything seen on this stage for some time, because the heart is open to its unabashed melodic beauty and lyrical hopefulness, made painfully poignant by the knowledge of what has gone before, or rather after. And I, yeah, and I, I felt the same way about uh, the Encores production. Well, what I, before, but I did not get that. Well, before we here. get that, what I thought yeah. you said yesterday was great. Was you said you you find it so poignant because it's almost like these people are so young, and it's it's almost like the interaction you have with your children, because yeah, the the, the thing that uh, you know um, makes you uh, the, the hard part about being a parent is you know what will come, you see beyond what they're going through. Um, and uh, it's it's that knowledge. You know how things will result. You know when that, you know, <laughs> uh, knife drops, the cut it will make, etc. cetera. Uh, and that's the hard part. Uh, so this had that similar kind of poignance. Right. Knowing how these kids would end up makes that, um, again, the optimism and the innocence all the more heartbreaking. Right. So it, to me, the play was fascinating uh, but fascinating in the sense of how do you go about the challenge. I think the Fiasco Theater Group actually made a lot of progress in terms of making this uh, make dramatic sense, making one scene fall from the other scene and bring you into the characters to some degree. The problem is that because Sondheim is Sondheim, the plot's pretty good, uh, and there does have some kind of dramatic uh, ballast to it, but it's the music that soars. And the Fiasco folks aren't really singers. So when it comes time for the songs that really pay off at the end, when you know the characters and they're as hopeful as they could possibly be as young people, and as you described them, so they know what to come, you don't have the soaring voices. And they're fantastic melodies, and they just couldn't deliver on that. I think that was a shortcoming in the production. When you All right. Yeah. yeah. I, but, I just, I, I could, uh, I, I don't know. We could talk about this for, there have been many productions and they have tried to solve these problems in a variety of ways. It's hard even to assess all of them. It's kind of a complex but, puzzle, but, um, you know. But I, the music is great. And, and listen, I, I was fascinated by it. I recommend it. I might think I recommend it more than, than right. you. And it's. Yeah. The music is great. Um, opening doors. Right. Uh, not a day goes by. Old friends. Old friends. Talk about a classic song. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, fantastic Sondheim and, song. And as usual, Sondheim caps, captures the human condition uh, in an amazing way yeah. with the uh, terrific words. And, uh, you know, this well, one did not 
rock my world. Okay, but in any event, for those who want to see it, it's Merrily We Roll Along and it's uh, Roundabout. Uh, it's interesting, by total coincidence, uh, there is another uh, documentary dealing with Sinai in the news beside the one that I mentioned a moment ago. There was uh, a, a documentary done by uh, D.A. Pennebaker, who was a great documentary maker uh, in the 70s, uh, in 1970, called Original Cast Album Company which was a documentary of the making of the original cast album for Company. Okay. Uh, and I've never gotten my hands on it. I'd love to see it. people talk about it. It's supposed to be fascinating, but it, I, I haven't seen it. That said, uh, there is an IFC series now called Documentary Now, in which they're making what are called mockumentaries, mm-hmm. in which they sort of uh, do parodies of documentary. And now I've done a parody of the Sondheim documentary I mentioned. It's called Original Cast Album Co-op. So the 14 people who have seen that right. must think it's pretty funny to see the parody. All right. So you, you put your finger on it <laughs> once again. So it's done. Uh, the, the leading figure behind it, John Mulaney and Seth Meyers, actually, and they're both very those, well known. Those are well-known, funny people. Right. So here's, here's the thing. Without spending too much time on it, the Times does the world a service, and they show it to Sondheim. They show it to Sondheim. And, uh, the mockumentary. The mockumentary. And then they go back. They go back to the reporter for the Times, goes back to talk to Mulaney and the Myers, to report to them what Sondheim had to say. And they're dying to know because they're huge Sondheim fans. Right. Right? And uh, they asked Sondheim, first of all, what do you think of the real documentary years ago? Did that capture things? He said, absolutely. That's, that was perfect. That was perfect. So, so what do you think it was this one? But by this one, and this is the quote from Sondheim, quote, I thought it was very funny, but I was with some people, and the people who had never seen the actual documentary not only didn't get it, but didn't think it was fun. Do they get that problem? (laughs) So, uh, I don't know what to recommend there. I'm not recommending that necessarily, but if anybody gets their hands on original cast album company, uh, send a copy to us. I'd really like to see it. Um, Now, there was one other thing in Broadway, which is kind of an odd story, but since it involves the combination of legal and Broadway, it's irresistible to everybody, including you, I'm sure. And To at least 50% of the people in the room. To Kill a Mockingbird is now the subject, again, of lawsuits, as it was once before. This is like, uh, you know, a lawyer's dream come true. A lawyer's dream come true. Not exactly, but but close. Uh, And why is that? It's because uh, To Kill a Mockingbird's producers are now enforcing contractual clauses uh, to shut down local productions of a different version of To Kill a Mockingbird that had been written years ago. It was written by a fellow named Christopher Sergel, it's not terribly sophisticated, perhaps, but it's been performed by community theaters for years and years. So this is something probably based on but based the screenplay on the of the movie or the based book? On the or, book. Based, yeah, on the based book. on the book. And it was serviceable. It was done some 50 years ago or something like that. And apparently it's not too demanding. And people have been putting on this play. It's not considered great literature. But it attracts but people. People enjoy it. People yeah. enjoy it. So there were – and this there was continued to be enjoyed until just about two or three weeks ago. Uh, when the Rudin Production Company, which runs To Kill a Mockingbird on Broadway... Which has paid for the rights. Paid for the rights, sent out letters shutting these productions down. And pe- cease and desist. Cease and desist. That's very good. It's very legal, Tamsin. It's, it's very like good. I'm married to a lawyer. It's almost as if you're married to a lawyer. And the deal is that the, the contractual terms, without going into great detail, prohibit folks from using this lesser production anywhere near a substantial city including Buffalo, would reach that uh, that level. 
and why be if if there ever is a first class New York production of a new adaptation of the book To Kill a Mockingbird. Well, guess what happened? We have that now, and now they're saying we're enforcing this clause. Why do they want it not to go on in Buffalo? Because there's going to be a touring company, and they're going to take this this new production and take it on tour, and they feel that it would be somehow uh, diluted, the appeal of, of the new production, if in fact people have recently seen this competing lesser production, which I right. question. So if people have already seen the version by Buffalo Community Players, exactly. they don't want to shell out <laughs> the, for the, Aaron the Sorkin $79. Version. All right. So, uh, but yeah. it's, it's, so it's a sad story. I, I won't go into the details, but there are four or five or six different instances that they give of small cities and small productions where they spent 6000 for the rights and they sold 8000 of tickets and they have people who are going to perform from a nine-year-old playing scout to a 93-year-old doing the narration and they're ready to set go and it's about to start on March 8th and they get a letter cease and desist as you like to say Samson and they're shutting down and why are they shutting down in part it's not entirely because they know they have no rights it's because they can't afford to fight for their rights yeah because they can't afford to litigate and uh, as a result they are out of business that's the end of the game and there is a quote here which is kind of poignant at the very end of the article in the Times by uh, this is a woman named Anne Cullimore Decker, who's 83-year-old, an actress and a local legend uh, in the small town that she uh, was going to be the narrator. She said, it was a shock. There's more than a little irony in it, since To Kill a Mockingbird is about a trial against an innocent man. Well, they're never going to have their trial. It is kind of silly, particularly since when you think about the original lawsuit, was that it, arguably it wasn't based on the book at all. Because <laughs> Harper Lee's estate jumped in and said, uh, no, no, this deviates too much from the book. What are you doing? And they well, settled that lawsuit. Clearly what they need is a civic-minded, generous, expert litigator to they, come in and save the day. For this, you know what I should do? And, and, and to, aren't you part-time now? And, and, and to dress like Gregory Peck and to get in, in front of all these, these juries and, and, and turn the tide. All right, we'll talk about that. We'll think about that later. Uh, so there you go. That's kind of a sad turn of events. Uh, so we, there was a long article in the Times Magazine about a guy who, believe it or not, has the ability to find Rembrandts uh, where no one thought they existed. Uh, is that is that a fair fair summary, Thompson? Yes, it's called Rembrandt in the Blood yeah. by Russell Shorto. And it's about Jan VI Eleventh, And... Uh, he is a gallery owner, yeah. dealer in um, old Dutch master paintings, which are not such the rage anymore. Apparently, um, mostly octogenarians are still collecting that kind of thing. You can still, you know, get millions, hundreds of millions of do uh, dollars for a Rembrandt or other Dutch masters, you know, big names. Yeah. Uh, but uh, in general, not so much allure. Um, which, you know, which is too bad. Anyway, uh, Jan Six uh, actually grew up with Rembrandt. His uh, ancient ancestor, Jan Six the First, uh, was actually had his portrait done by Rembrandt. Hmm. And uh, in fact, there's a whole Six collection. The Six collection is uh, quite an amazing. Uh, collection of paintings and also and other uh, decorative arts, etc., uh, from you know the Netherlands, 
and uh, it's uh, now a foundation, but his family still cares for it. But anyway, he grew up with the just, you know, just breathing Rembrandt, mm -hmm. literally. And so recently, uh, on uh, a random cold, rainy day, when nothing big was happening, he's thumbing through a Christie's catalog and he sees a picture that knocks his socks off and he realizes uh, it's uh, not a, um, you know, a by the followers of Rembrandt, but it is probably by Rembrandt. He tells us by looking at a catalog. Yes. A catalog photo. Yes. Wow. But this is how he does it. The lace collar. Okay. So a particular type of lace collar was in style for a couple of years in the 1630s. Yeah. Okay. When Rembrandt is not yet a big name. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, the, you know, once those lace collars go out of style, they're not in any portraits. Nobody's doing pictures with those lace collars in them. So the catalog says by followers of Rembrandt. In 1633, there are no followers see, of Rembrandt, right. okay? He's no one to follow. All right. Okay, so he is kind of figuring this out, and he uses other clues, too. Yeah. Uh, and he actually, uh, he he looks at it, he talks to some people, he flies uh, to England, looks at it. When nobody's looking, he takes some pictures, he examines it in even more carefully, because after all, you don't want anyone to know you're interested, okay? The, um, the uh, estimated price is like between, you know, 20, about 20,000 pounds, right. okay? Which is nothing, Right. For a Rembrandt, right. okay. The Louvre and the Rijksmuseum just got together uh, to buy a pair of um, portraits from the same period for a hundred and seventy-four oh million yeah. dollars. Yeah. Okay, so uh, he keeps it uh, on the quiet, on yeah. the QT. He finds an investor once he's got a certain amount of what he feels is uh, corroboration. He finds an investor who's willing to go up to at least four million. They snag it yeah. at one hundred and seventy-three thousand bucks. Okay, about one hundred thirty-four thousand pounds. Well, that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal, right? Um, and so, uh, anything. So it's a big excitement. It's a big coup, and uh, of course, it results in all kinds of right. other intrigue right. and scandals. It's like whenever you have a lottery, ticket, dealers, yeah, right. uh, you know, kind right. of uh, double. Uh, what do you call it? Double um, cheating on each other. Oh, double crossing. Yeah. Double crossing, yeah. uh, etc. And you know, uh, it's uh, really quite a story. But then, of course, it comes out that he's actually found another undiscovered. Uh, Rembrandt. Jeez. So it's it's quite a good article by Russell Shorto. It tells a, um, some interesting other things about um, Rembrandt paintings and Jan Six. Jan Six's father, so it's the Jan Six the Eleventh, is the dealer who's making these discoveries. Um, Jan Six Tenth is at you know currently the sort of the caretaker 
of the collection. And he's very old school. I mean, he's got mm -hmm. this huge responsibility for this amazing collection, and uh, he's pretty serious about it. And uh, Jan 611 is somewhat of a stickler for, you know, proper um, display and uh, understanding of the paintings. And he was trying to convince his father these uh, 17th century Dutch masters were at some point in the 19th century reframed in huge, elaborate gold frames that really fight with the paintings themselves and make them you know, literally change how you see the colors. Right. So he's trying to convince his father to go back to these kind of sober, dark, mm -hmm. uh, simpler frames that uh, they similar to what they would have had originally and dad wouldn't go for it and uh, they had a big fight uh, but uh, in the end uh, 11 gives in to 12 because he'd rather be friends with his father than make a point uh, another interesting thing is is that 11 gives in to 10 11 gives in to 10 sorry right, yeah all right uh, you know math is not my best thing oh, all right. but anyway the, the son gives in to the father right. um so you're right but uh another thing he does for the writer of the article russell shorto is he turns out the lights and shows him the rembrandts by candlelight mm -hmm. which again makes the paintings come alive yeah. because they were painted by candlelight to be seen yeah. right. by you know daylight or candlelight uh, really. Sure. So lots of interesting aspects of that article and, it, it, you know, a lot of intrigue to it and uh, modern marketing uh, ideas. Uh, it, it's a fun article. Russell Shorto. All right. Well, that, it does sound interesting. I know it was a long article. Uh, you told me it's like most of the magazine or something like that. So that wasn't most of the magazine, but it, yeah. All right. All right. So here's the next big investment. There was an article about CBD, but we're not going to talk about that because everyone's talking about CBD. That's exactly right. It's it's on the radio and the TV constantly. Right. Constantly. And then, you know, it's too late to invest in that. It's too late. Don't bother. Here, here's something that's coming from out of left field, but we're going to give you the early word. And that is country clubs for cars. That's right. Instead of joining a country Armand, are you listening? Yes. Instead of having a country club, joining a country club um, to play golf. You join a country club to uh, house your car, to keep your car up, to uh, keep it in a so-called garage mahal, is what's described here <laughs> in one of these facilities. Uh, the one they talk about most is the Monticello uh, Race Motor Club in Sullivan County. And it is a country club, and they have fees like a country club. Initiation, $60,000. Annual dues, $6,000 to $12,000 or $14,000 for a family. And what do you get? You get uh, you have access to Monticello's 4.1 mile racetrack, a karting track, off-road trails, professional racing instructor, just like you would have a golf pro, and of course you have all these folks to work on your car, to tinker your car, and to keep it in one of those garage mahals. And the story in the Times is about several of these that have grown up. There's one outside of Detroit. Um, is there one outside, one outside of, of Percusy? Uh, there will be after I'm on. Here's this, uh, you know, and, and part of it, part of the allure of this is. Yes, the, do the, give me yeah, the allure. The fear that we're going uh, to. Uh, Stop driving? To self-driving cars. The cars are going to drive yeah. themselves. And their folks are saying that is going to eliminate one of the great pleasures in life is driving your own car. And they want to keep that tradition alive for the 
generations to come. And the way to do that oh, is well, that to preserve be... these cars and give these young people a chance to drive <laughs> on these tracks. Otherwise, they'll never have a chance that to drive. That would be hilarious when I think of how much time in life I spend driving and that maybe my grandchildren, yeah. for the thrill of driving, like I used to get every day commuting, right. will go to a country club, country club and pay money. And to take it out of the garage, Mahal, but only... If you join one of these uh, country clubs while the getting is good or start one yourself. So there we go. Once again, ahead of the uh, curve. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah. All right. So you had, some, you came across well, something in history. Well, here's the thing. Yeah. For Christmas, yeah. you got me a, uh, what I would call a prescription to uh, BBC yeah. History Magazine. That's correct. And it comes all the way from the UK it is, to it? my hot little hands. Yes. And it's quite fabulous. I'm, I'm loving every bit of it. But what caught my eye this week uh, was a little teeny blurb saying the guitarist from Guns N' Roses, yeah. I believe his name is Slash. Of course. Has joined a fundraising effort yeah. to support... The dinosaurs of Crystal Palace Park. Yeah. Okay. So which, which I never heard of. You never heard of it. Uh, um, anyway, in uh, in 1851, there was the Great ex- Exhibition mm-hmm. in okay. London, yeah. which had a giant greenhouse called yeah. the Crystal Palace. Yeah. It was basically a World's Fair before there were World's Fairs. When that's over, they pack up the Crystal Palace, somebody buys it, and they move it to the suburbs and uh, reassemble it and make this whole park. The Crystal Palace Park. And in fact, now the town is named Crystal Palace. Um, and uh, Or maybe it's Crystal Park. Anyway, uh, as part of this park, they commission a sculptor to cast giant cement dinosaurs. So this is in 1853. And the person supervising all of it is Richard Owen the professor who invented the word dinosaur. Well, he, How he cool knows of that? what he speaks, cool? yes. So the sculptor was named Benjamin Waterhouse Hawkins, mm-hmm. and he made these huge mm-hmm. uh, dinosaurs from various periods, 33 of them. And the really big ones have like uh, kind of a brick interior yeah, look, structure. I, I saw the pictures you showed me. It's, and it's, it's, uh, they uh, say he actually ha- held amazing. a dinner inside the body of well, one yes, of them. Right. Um, so They're they, huge. They're they fall huge. into disrepair over time. They've been uh, yeah. conserved a couple of times. And uh, apparently there's more that should be done. And uh, so, you know, Guns N' Roses is putting forth as you'd expect. Uh, their, as, as one does. Their support. Uh, what's also interesting is that uh, um, Hawkins came to New York yeah. to do a oh, similar right. thing right. in Central Park, but it became some kind of political issue, and Boss Tweed's guys, his henchmen, actually vandalized and destroyed oh, uh, the dinosaurs that were being that's made. Um, and so, uh, and one result is that Hawkins ends up coming out to Princeton and doing some, some dinosaur murals. paintings. Yeah. For Princeton, we'll track those down. We haven't found them. Yeah, yet. we got we got to see oh, those. I should, but say, anyway, the the pictures of these giant, two almost two hundred year old dinosaurs are pretty and this cool. Is, looking. And the park is the Crystal Crystal Palace Park. Crystal Palace Park. So, uh, and it, it actually um, right around the time it is created, trains are. Uh, created, becoming more sophisticated and faster, etc. And so it does get a lot of uh, 
maintains popularity, but they look pretty cool. But I should say, too, apropos of what you said at the outset, uh, UK magazines, look into that. Uh, I got this magazine for you, Tams, and the History magazine, which seemed much more interesting than any American magazine on that subject. I read something called Cycling Plus, which is 10 times better than any bicycling magazine I've ever seen in the U.S. I don't know what's going on in the U.K. They just think of magazines differently. Check well, what UK about magazine. this? Yeah. They know cycling. Yeah. And they know history. Yeah, but it's just... a lot more history. No, but it's a whole different project. It's All just right. a much bigger deal. And uh, it's a fabulous magazine. I think yours is good, too. But go ahead. What else do you have? No, I don't have... Do I have... I don't have anything else. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. You had the, the, the point oh, about I'm handkerchiefs. Oh, I'm still on? Yes. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, Fun little article opinion piece in uh, Praise of the Ever Practical Handkerchief by Stuart Green. It's in the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, I got to say, I've been thinking about handkerchiefs, like the white cloth handkerchief that you reuse, that you wash. My father always had one in his back right pocket. And uh, Stuart Green, his father did too. And he has one. And he, he says... They are very useful. They don't end up in landfills or sewers or require the cutting down of trees. They are way better than tissues for wiping a sweaty brow. You can use them to dry off a park bench or a seat at a ballpark after it rains. They can serve, they can serve as a tourniquet yeah. uh, if your finger if you cut your finger well, while cooking. Yeah, yeah. They're perfect for cleaning your glasses, and you can use them as a Head covering. Well, the other thing, too, is it, it, there's something about the man has the handkerchief for the woman. I mean, isn't that part of the drill here? Yes. Although um, he has, he talks about he can't convince his sons to use an actual handkerchief. They think that's gross. Right. Uh, but he has persuaded his wife uh, so much so that uh, she indicated she would like to have her own. Uh, and uh, he gave her some. Nice little lacy ones for Valentine's Day. And this seems to have been a hit. Next year. But it has an appeal, doesn't it? I mean, I can see the the gross aspect to it. You you never know what happens once you use them, you know? It's kind of, you know. Yeah, we'd have to get back to handkerchief etiquette. Yeah. You know, um, only offering one if it's clean. Right. (laughs) But, uh, and yeah, yeah. but people don't, uh, it it was a nice tradition. And you see that in the movies all the time that a woman's crying, something gets dirty, something gets smudged. the gentleman comes right. and offers her a right. clean hanky. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, and then uh, just, you know, the Wall Street Journal, you know, has cute little stuff, interesting stuff. Sometimes the food stuff is just nine out of ten times stupid. Right. Uh, I don't know what planet they're living on. I oh. think all these people just go out to eat. The cooking stuff is just beyond them. Their headline today for an article called Slow Food Fast is a proper English roast in half an hour. Quick roasting quail makes a delicious meal any night of the week. Oh. <laughs> All right. This is in the Wall Street Journal, guys. It's not in uh, BBC history. Right. Okay. Um, who makes quail? I, who eats quail? Who sells quail? Where would you even buy quail? Yeah, I know. You go to the shop right and get quail? I, you get, uh, you, uh, you send, you send. I don't even think you can go I had to, Whole Foods and get quail. You send your man out and he uh, gets you quail. You send your but man. Who wants to eat that little. We'd like quail tonight. That little and, delicate uh, thing. That's not oh your problem. It's the people downstairs. It's an but upstairs, it cooks downstairs. Fast. It's, it cooks fast. It's, uh, yeah. It's, Please, it's Wall the solution. Street Journal, you know. 
I'm telling you, if Wake you have up a, and smell the roses. You have to have a staff. If you have a staff, uh, you get quail. <laughs> I tell you, uh, I do not get it. Yeah, well, it's 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 the uh, you need a, a staff. Um, okay, so the last story is kind of a, a throwback in some ways, and modern at the same time. And it has to do with the... I think this is a very interesting story. I spotted this myself. Oh, well, then it's legit. Uh, It's a story about Duke's star quarterback, whose name is Daniel Jones. Daniel Jones is going to be drafted in the first round of the NFL draft coming up. He's uh, he's arguably going to be a star quarterback in the NFL. He almost went to Princeton, you know. He did almost go to Princeton, and then he uh, thought better of it. He uh, (laughs) Clearly what happened to him was that he really took his football seriously and he got a chance to go to Duke as a walk-on. But that was enough for him to prefer Duke to to Princeton. Duke obviously having a bigger football program than Princeton. That's what mattered to him. I mean, but, and yet Duke doesn't have the biggest football program in the world, but there he was. So when you know, you might have an opportunity to actually play. Right. As opposed to sit in the library. uh, So, but here's what happens. He, he gets into the game, uh, you know, as a walk-on, you wouldn't think so, but he gets a chance to play because he starts developing and looking good, and he's doing great his first few games of the season, and then he breaks his collarbone in a game. And Boy, does history ever repeat itself, okay? <laughs> Can we think of any other Daniels who broke their collarbone, yeah, I broke my collarbone playing football? But much worse than this guy. You know, they don't, frankly, I'll just say right off the bat, they don't tell you whether it was his right or his left collarbone, throwing or not. I think it was non-throwing, but let's put that aside. They break his co- He breaks his collarbone, and that could be a season-ending injury, except for one thing. Uh, the, to the rescue. To the rescue. Well, the staff comes up with this idea. I mean, it's cozy staff. I don't get it. They realize that there are two engineers on the football team, uh, a fellow named uh, Clark uh, Bullitt and uh, another guy named Kevin uh, Guessman. And uh, they say to them, uh, you know, I understand you guys have experience in terms of 3D printing uh, in various contexts. Could you develop a brace for our quarterback, uh, Daniel Jones, so that he's able to get back on the football field? They had done a previous wrist brace right a previous project and the coach knew about that uh, yeah look it okay. wasn't completely uh, completely a frolic but even so it's not as if they're going to the biggest experts in the world it's like they say our team has a problem how are we as a team going to conquer this situation does anybody know anything about building braces for collarbones look look i believe the story entirely i think it's great and on top of everything else i can see a coach just say yeah these guys Make braces. That's, that's Why don't coach, we get them? That's your coach voice. Yeah. So, but here's the best part of this. This guy, Jones, is friends with these two guys. Now, understand that there are football programs. You don't want your enemies to make this. But, but to have, these football programs have 85, 90 people. Because Jones was has, has such modest beginnings because he was a walk-on. And these two guys were walk-ons. They were buddies. They lived down the hall from each other at the beginning. Any one of them could have become a star or not a star. Jones became a star. These guys became the uh, 3D printer guys. I'm happy for all of them. Well, just to give the obvious answer to the, the, the conclusion of the story, sure enough, they make a great brace. It gets him back on the field. They make it in two weeks. Yeah. And then he's uh, he's back in business and he has a great season. He's a star of the Senior Bowl. There's a quote from your favorite announcer, John Gruden, who says Daniel Jones is a huge upside. As I said, he's going to be a first-round draft choice. And it's all because his engineer buddies on the football team were able to get him back on the field. It's Two a, things. Yeah. Gruden, not my favorite announcer <laughs> by any stretch of the imagination. Yes. And number two, necessity 
is the mother of invention. Okay. Uh, well, in any event, you can't beat that story. I had about nine different sports stories lined up, and that's the one that shot to the head of the list. And uh, it's a unique situation. So we'll leave you on that note. Uh, until uh, next week, this is Dan Apuhoff. And Tamsin Granger, we'd stay, but we've got birthday cake to eat. Exactly right. Uh, see you later for Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper.